This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And pumpkin pie? I love pumpkin pie. Is that your favorite? No, pecan pie is my favorite. I got into it when my husband's grandmother's homemade pumpkin pie recipe. Does anyone else find it weird that you only eat pumpkin pie during the holidays? Like, why? Like, how come I can't eat pumpkin pie year round? Like, I feel, you know, like a... I'm going to be excommunicated from humanity if I want a slice of pumpkin pie in like March. And pumpkin pie is delicious. Let's put something on our calendars for March. <laughs> we'll all meet up together and we'll eat pumpkin pie. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Welcome to the show, everyone. Brett and Steph from pumpkin pie to talking about innovation driven by startups. We don't talk a lot about innovation happening at big companies. We talk to a lot of earlier stage companies. Do you find that large companies end up responding to trends once they see how they play out and whether or not they're fads? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a general truth in enterprises is that they are not early movers. They are late adopters in general. As long as that's their strategy, that can be okay. But you know, I think we've seen a trend over the last five years, six years where enterprises have become more and more interested and shown more and more interest in understanding trends earlier in the process, getting involved in entrepreneurship and innovation earlier in the process. This has happened before. It's been cyclical traditionally where entrepreneurship is sexy and innovation is sexy. And then in a bad macro economy, it's not sexy anymore and it gets cut. It's the first thing that gets cut. So we shall see with the current macro environment that we're in right now, do these innovation budgets get cut? It'll be really interesting to see with the cycle of where they go and how enterprises change their spend. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic. And the costs of innovation are a hurdle for all companies, large and small. And today we're talking to Rihanna Lin. She's the founder of Journey Foods, which helps big food companies come out with new products, finding the most cost-effective ingredients and where to source them and what the latest trends are. And there's definitely a need for the work she's doing. So that brings us to our question of the day, which is, What's stopping new food products from getting to market? It was really eye-opening for me, guys, to learn about how it's sometimes easier for these companies to outsource some parts of the process to make it more efficient. It's just so complicated. You're not only trying to pay attention to trends and what is the actual product that you should make, but then you're looking at how do you do it? How do you source those ingredients? What is the cost? How are you marketing it? How are you then distributing it? It's just so complex. Sure, that makes sense. She was also a ton of fun to chat with. She's had all these amazing experiences from being a world-class athlete to working in the White House. Really cool stuff. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. A California-based company says that it grows plants that can talk to their growers, and it just raised $16 million in Series A funding led by John Deere. The co-founders of Inner Plant tell TechCrunch that they develop genetically engineered crops 
that give off certain signals. So when these plants are thirsty, for instance, they have a pest attack or need nitrogen so farmers can act quickly. The company uses sensors and satellite technology to help give those early signals, which aids farmers in reducing the amount of pesticides needed for crops lost to disease. Guys, we recently talked to Blue River, which was acquired by Deere in a landmark deal a few years ago. My sense is if Deere is backing this company, they must be onto something. I was about to say, what would your plants say to you, Aditi, if they could talk? <laughs> Steph, same question to you. What would your plants say to you? Please help keep us alive. Yeah, mine would also beg me. We have two plants here. We've got a Fabricio plant Zente, and we have Aunt Clara are the names of our two plants here. I'm not sure what they would say to us. I love the idea of talking plants. I think it's a great idea. That'd be really funny. I do think that sensor technology is a big trend that we're seeing throughout agriculture. We get pitched that a lot. And it's how you're actually utilizing the sensing data and what you're doing with it and how easy it is to collect. It's actually a tough space to invest in because there is so much noise in it. And driving adoption at the farm level for sensors is hard. You have to think about like, how do you place them in points where combines aren't going to run over and plow them? When you talk about like satellite technology and driving information from satellites, that technology is pretty actually commonplace now. There's a lot of different companies that use like those data sets. And so it's actually really hard to differentiate yourself from people that are existing in the marketplace. And Steph, you and I may not be able to keep plants alive, but we're champions at talking. So maybe that'll be great for us too. Exactly. It's a great fit. <laughs> well, next, Bachins, a Sebastopol, California-based Japanese barbecue sauce brand, just raised $13 million in Series A funding led by Sonoma Brands Partners. The name Bachin means granny in Japanese and was inspired by the founder's grandmother. I love these types of stories and small batch sauces and condiments. Is it notable that this particular brand is VC-backed, or is that more because of its proximity to Silicon Valley? It is notable that it's VC-backed. It's actually hard to raise capital as a CPG company. The reality is like the multiples of acquisition are much lower on a physical product like a consumer product than they are in software. And so it's harder to build that multi-billion dollar venture style returns that you think about traditionally in the venture community behind a consumer product company. So there's just a little bit less money out there for it. So it's super cool to see companies um, have success stories like this and hopefully build huge big brands. And I'm with you, Aditi. I think it's fun to see these condiment small sauce brands doing well. We've got a super cool one in Minnesota called Maza. It's M-A-A-Z-A-H. It's an Afghan-style chutney. It's awesome. The team is great. We'll get some and send it out to you. <laughs> and you know what? I'll send you the botchins because I actually just saw it in a local grocery store here because we're close to it as well. Finally, Starbucks will be launching its own NFT platform starting with select customers later this year. The platform is called Odyssey and will work in tandem with its loyalty program. Members who order their drinks online will get Starbucks branded NFTs, which the company says will be sort of like digital collectible stamps. Guys, what's the strategic objective behind this? This is obviously a customer engagement play, and I don't think that we have enough data and examples of whether or not NFTs actually engage people. I don't know if it's been proven that it works. Coming up, we'll talk to Rihanna Lin about how she's helping big companies innovate by helping them come out with new products cost-effectively and efficiently. Rihanna Lin's company, Journey Foods, applies data to the world's biggest food supply chains to help bring plant-based foods to market faster and more cost-efficiently. That may sound like a big undertaking. 
But it's just one of Rihanna's many superpowers. From her days as an elite athlete and pre-med student to her early entrepreneurial experiences as the founder of a massively successful juice bar and a stint working for First Lady Michelle Obama, one of Rihanna's early challenges was figuring out where she could have the most impact while doing what she loved. Today, Rihanna sits at a unique intersection of food, data, nutrition, and culture that reflects her own journey. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, home of Northwestern University, and it's a very creative and entrepreneurial town. I think of back to my childhood as something that was one sort of privileged in a way that I got to experience a lot of activities that helped me. I talk to people about this a lot, that I always feel like exposure is one of the world's greatest professors. And I think that I got a lot of exposure to many things very early on growing up in this town. And so I was quirky and I was athletic and I was exposed to science very early. And so I knew when I was maybe eight or nine that I wanted to be a scientist. And so it's very interesting to see where I end up today. From there, I ended up in North Carolina going into undergrad. Aditi, when you were eight or nine, what did you want to be? Steph, it's coming to you next. (laughs) A journalist. (laughs) Really? You knew you wanted to be a journalist? I did. It was such a calling. Steph, what about you? I wanted to be the CEO of the Walt Disney Company because back in my day, the CEO would introduce movies on ABC on Sunday nights. I remember that. Remember that? And so I thought that the CEO's job was just choose movies, announce them, and design theme parks. And I thought that was great. You all are far more thoughtful than I was. I'm sure when I was eight or nine, I had no idea what I wanted to be. I was just trying to eat some cookies, play some sports and hang out. I probably wanted to be like a professional basketball player or something. Seth, I think you actually reminded me of like at one point I wanted to be like a goop. Was it goop or like the Nickelodeon slime scientist? Oh, yeah. You can't do this on television. They drop the slime on your head. Right. All that and all those shows. I was really just early on sort of primed to become like a chronic disease, sort of cancer scientist in some ways. I saw diabetes very early on in my family. It really intrigued me. So I think that's where the early pathway into science was for me. And then there were programs at Northwestern for like middle schoolers where we could research during the summer and sort of camp out with science nerds from around the world. So that was really my childhood with art, beaches, which we do have in Chicago land area and a lot of uh, sort of creative thinking around business. Rihanna, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Northwestern undergrad. Do you remember Buffalo Joes? Oh, yeah. I remember Buff Joes. We could reminisce this whole episode. I know. It could be a whole different episode. So you grew up in Northwestern and you said that you found yourself then in North Carolina for college. Where did you go for undergrad? So I went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. I ended up taking classes at both, but I went to my track coach. I got recruited. He recruited me just before the Stanford coach recruited me for discus. I just thought California was so far at 17, 18, like I couldn't imagine my family, like we re-rented a van, a minivan and drove it to North Carolina to bring all. I had like the most decked out dorm, like. <laughs> That's amazing. And so that was a little scary for me. But what's interesting is that at the time, Stanford had like one of the only black track coaches. But my coach at North Carolina was married to the Duke coach and recruited a bunch of us. He was a Barcelona Olympian. And so I was competing with a lot of Olympians at the time. 
I don't know how I ended up there, but my dad blessed me with some really strong shoulders in high school and I became a quick thrower. I got also an academic scholarship to go pre-med at UNC. It was known for, you know, one of the top schools of public health. So that really attracted me to heading down there. North Carolina is also a big agriculture state. And so there were a lot of things and programs and sort of graduates that led me to that pathway along with the coach. That's so cool. And I've forgotten about the whole athletic part because you were an elite. Javelin was your sport. I was actually a little bit better at discus, but I threw both in undergrad. And it was interesting. I think it helped me become an entrepreneur. One, because a lot of people were taller. I mean, it's known as like a, if you ever watch Olympics or some of these like world competitions, the discus and javelin throwers are like six feet something. My coach really recruited people of all body sizes. And he made sure that we had the perfect technique and that we were like faster and stronger, like a full combination of the two. And so we were throwing, I think we passed the like hourly limit, like NCAA limit on how much you're supposed to practice every week. I think it's like 20 hours without being paid. And so it's just like repetition over and over. I was, I became a master at taking naps after chemistry class and then like going to the ring to, to practice and throw. It was great. I became like maybe top 30, top 25 in the country in throws and the team was top 10 in the country. And I, I got to learn a lot about individual competition, sort of like having the strength by yourself. And I think that really primed me for what has been sort of serial entrepreneurship since undergrad for me. So you're an undergrad and you're studying biology and an elite athlete at this point. It was a biochemistry track. And then I found out that I really like studying Black people. So I double majored in biochemistry and, and African-American studies, Black studies now. But I thought that I was going to be some sort of geneticist early on and quickly found out that that bored me, you know, just sitting in a lab all day. And that was in the middle of college that you had that realization? It was sophomore year, sophomore, junior year, maybe even freshman year. I can't remember. but. I was sitting with my teammate who was a, she was a soccer player. She was actually an Olympian. We were watching sort of like the unfolding of Hurricane Katrina. And there were a bunch of medical anthropologists came on to discuss like the effects of like not building communities with like food access and, you know, good housing and infrastructure. And that just seemed way more interesting to me to sort of build and understand a community outside of a hospital or outside of a lab. So that's when I really start to explore career paths outside of traditional academic research. And at the same time, it seems like you were slowly getting bitten by the entrepreneurial bug too. I was, I was like a dorm room hacker. I was building all types of pre-Shopify websites into like some of the first people on Shopify and everyone I could find. I'm like, you need a website. I was pitching it to like the researchers that were working on like HIV and like homeless communities. I'm like, you need a website. Like, let me just build a website for you. You were studying biochemistry and double majoring in African-American studies and an elite athlete. And as if you weren't an overachiever enough, you're also now doing coding and software and designing websites. So there's all of these things kind of percolating. After college, what direction did you end up going in? So for me, it was hard to drop all of those. So I ended up coming back and I said, like, I'm going to be a coach part time while I go to grad school and research and start this juice company. 
That was the one that fell off first. Just coaching. They asked me to compete a little bit. So I was only able to train the students maybe two times a week. And I only stuck with that for about nine months. Then school fell off. I quickly realized that the first week of a public health program, like Masters of Public Health and an MBA sort of dual program that I did, they were like, this is what you're going to make as a policy administrator or a public health leader. And I was just like, that's not enough for how much you guys, like, I can't do that. And so I would say within three months, I was getting in trouble for sending emails to my classmates on like discounted smoothies. Tell us about the juice company. What was the impetus to start a juice company? I wrote a paper on bringing and solving for food deserts in Chicago. Juice bars were a thing in California and New York. And I had an uncle that was traveling a lot and very passionate about entrepreneurship as well. My uncle approached me about Jamba Juice that had shut down in an area that used to be known as like essentially inner city, sort of impoverished Chicago. Famous movies have been recorded there. Have y'all seen Candyman? Cabrini Green. Yes. This juice bar, Jamba Juice started it. And then like within six months, Whole Foods announced that it was going to build out the second biggest Whole Foods in the country right here in this area. And so we decided to open and renovate this old Jamba Juice. And within seven months, we made a million dollars and became one of the top juice bars in the country in 2011. What was the name of your juice bar? Peeled Juice Bar. And it was fun because, I mean, we were, my uncle was younger, but like young, black, they were fusing some culture into the juice bar, you know, like the music that you're playing when you go in there, the names of the smoothies, the diversity and the biodiversity of the add-ons of the ingredients that we put in there and the mixtures. And so it quickly became really popular. And then we started selling cold pressed juice detoxes, you know, when that was like a whole wave. So we had to take over a production facility and went up to 40 employees within 16 months. And within this time, you had an incredible, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to work in the White House. Can you talk a little bit about that? That was challenging. So my uncle was not happy about that, but it ended up working because essentially everyone that worked on Obama's second term campaign ordered juice from all around the country. And so it just like turned into more press and more sales opportunities. And so I went to start as an intern under Valerie Jarrett and Tina Chen, who was Michelle Obama's chief of staff. And so I literally did everything I could at the White House. And I sort of got the opportunity to stay on longer and extend my position, which still didn't make my uncle happy. But when I came back, I was really equipped to scale this up. And so when I was at the White House, I was a photographer. I was the first lady's like garden hand. And then I wrote like White House blogs on policy around women and girls in science and technology. It was an office of public engagement. So we essentially engaged with entrepreneurs, celebrities, nonprofit leaders to help drive policy. It sounds like you learned so much and developed so many skills from that time. After coming out of the White House, can you tell us a little bit about those experiences that led you to start Journey Foods? 
I can't remember the exact day, but I essentially was leading an event for young entrepreneurs that were sort of changing the world. These were, you know, Forbes 30 under 30 and sort of other leaders that were doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do in the world, at least through the lens of sort of a scientist or young policy wonk. But they were doing them as a scaled venture backed company. And even in that office, seeing how many celebrities and business leaders came through that were still affecting policy, I essentially couldn't go back to academia or, you know, sort of serving in a public role because I saw that, like, you could still have impact in those spaces and design your entire career and future. And so I went back to Chicago, worked on scaling up the juice bar, really focused on e-commerce so that we could sell and ship around the country. And that was a nightmare. We had to ship things overnight or two days with dry ice and we were scaling really fast. That was fun. And then we got hit with some blogs on like transparency in January because essentially some ladies said that we didn't have organic kale and like we just literally couldn't find organic kale <laughs> to produce. We were producing like 800 or 900 bottles a day. The supply chain in Chicago wasn't really able to keep up with some of our growth. And I wanted to understand how my team and our customers could create and find more transparency in where our products and our ingredients were coming from. And so that's how I launched Food Trace and ended up going into entrepreneurship and residence at Google and then joining Don Thompson, the former CEO of McDonald's at Cleveland Avenue to scale out his venture firm. Can you talk a little bit about high level kind of some of your biggest learnings from those experienced that led you to found Journey Foods? I mean, honestly, all of it has to do with supply chain. From understanding blockchain really early on, sort of 2013 to 2015, well, I didn't understand it, but I was exposed to it, you know, a lot earlier than some folks in the application to seeing how many companies were failing with tens of millions of dollars in funding, anything from Juicero, which was under Google Ventures portfolio, to even beyond meat taking five years to get breakfast sausage out, right? And so from these experiences and from my own experiences, it's very clear to me that innovation with a ton of capital is still very, very limited by both the brokers and the supply chain that we have built. And it doesn't matter how smart you are and how many researchers you put on the bench, at the end of the day, the supply chain still sort of moves things. And so across the board, time savings and supply chain optimization was a like continual lesson. And that's why at Journey Foods, though we sort of started with focusing on optimizing around nutrition, Within packaged products, we very early on looked into creating scoring around, you know, ingredient availability and costs. And that's been a very sticky product for us. It seems like the big driver in all of these experiences was huge learnings about supply chain and the importance of really diving in, getting that right. And you took that experience to found journey because you found that this is a pain point and it's an opportunity then, right? Absolutely. When I first started Journey, I brought on a friend and asked a friend to sort of help me co-found it. He was a food science manager at Mars, managing Skittles mostly. We wanted to build out sort of like an unprecedented look at a packaged food item that had really long shelf stability. We started this product, Journey Bites, 
they're essentially these cubes that have very similar ingredients to a smoothie, plus some plant-based pectins for texture. We looked at everything from like ingredient cost inputs to timelines to if we could predict like a recipe and nutrition from like some early data models. So from that, we were just going to create pretty much white label cubes for all types of companies, right? Like if you were General Mills or if you were a juice or a smoothie company, or if you had a very rare ingredient coming out of Turkey, like how could we apply that into a cube that could be sold in any market around the world? But then as I was presenting our model in 2018, while I was still at Cleveland Avenue, essentially we were getting requests from sauce companies and pasta companies and cookie companies, you know, across board different product companies saying like, we really need data to help us out. And this is when you start to see a wave between like 2018 and 2020, where sort of like top down, they're saying, okay, data and AI is sort of the next wave within investment, within our businesses. And that's continued. It's shifted a little bit more now to cost and supply chain. But across the board, more companies are investing in data and in AI. So we started to sit down with a lot of innovation managers, food science managers, supply chain procurement managers to understand their cost and their teams. Like how many people does it take to make a Skittles or a Beyond Burger? It's crazy to think about the cost, but I mean, they have like 120 person teams that are just in test labs and in research analysts. And they're spending anywhere from like 400 to 900K per individual SKU just to like do some incremental improvement. I just think that's like incredibly inefficient. And it takes these companies years to sort of improve. And, and some of the improvements are have been shortened, but there's still like a very deep and rich opportunity for using more data within our food processes. We also have to think about the fact that like we're all so different, right? Like we created food and sort of modern food manufacturing has been built around like sort of one diet archetype here in the U.S. in the food pyramid. And that's driven a lot of policy and investment and subsidies across the board. And that's affecting so many people here in this country alone. And so I think also data is going to help with sort of rapid manufacturing personalization less personalization but more like cohort-based production of food it seems like with the work that you're doing you're also getting almost an advanced look at what these companies are working on and the food trends coming up in the future the way that we pull in as a team food trends is just pretty comprehensive i mean it's everything from like the way we write newsletter to the way we consume tiktok to the billions of data points that we crunch every week. I think that anecdotally, these companies come to us after they've seen the trends sort of buck for several months or a couple of years. And then they're like, okay, now we have to have a plant-based corn dog. Or what do you think we should have? But we're open to going into like a more sustainable product, right? Because that's sort of where like the public or the initiatives are pushing. It seems like you're not just doing cost savings and improving efficiencies. Are you also reducing the timeline that it takes a company to come out with, let's say, that plant-based corn dog that you mentioned? Well, absolutely. I think the reason why 
the process that we're building and the relationships that we're building at Journey Foods is so effective and sticky for our customers and we're continuing to try to improve that process is that traditionally you have a food science and a chef and innovation team working in one part of the building and you have the procurement managers and the ingredient order like managers just to put it like simply another side of the building you come up with five recipes that look cool and pretty and you get some cohorts of people that say that tastes good and i would purchase that and then they end up going over to the procurement officers and saying like which one of these five will work and so for us we're telling the chefs and the food scientists from day one the costs and the availability for that to work and so there's none of that sort of failure at the end of the sort of iteration and most companies are not even going through like five options they're going through 70 80 sort of iterations of recipes before they get to sort of something that is smiling can go into a grocery store or you know food service wholesale and so we really want to start as early as possible with providing those insights. You've mentioned race and nutrition earlier in the conversation. Is that still top of mind for you in the work that you're doing now and as you look into the future? Well, you know, being a Black queer woman in food, which I mean, still is old white male, will always be top of mind for me. And so I try to be very intentional with how I show up and how I communicate the stories that need to be told and work with the businesses that we need to work with. Additionally, I think that nutrition has always been a passion of mine from like my family and personal side to where I think people often overlook and often talk about malnutrition. When we talk about malnutrition, we always think through like hunger and sort of access. And I will always say this and continue to say this, poor eating malnutrition when it comes to sort of just consumption of, you know, ingredients that basically cause disease is still the number one cause of death across the world. And that's only grown since we have started modern manufacturing of food. I still think that we have a little ways to go with our understanding of its impact. You know, at Journey Foods, one of the things that we've done to keep focus is only look at nutrition, sustainability, and cost data at every single ingredient that we bring into the database. And so when people ask us to look into consumer trends and social media trends and all those things and taste trends. We don't really dive into those with any depth. We like sort of keep our partnerships around those so that we can maintain sort of this authenticity around what Journey Foods is and that is nutrition sustainability. The ultimate mission is to help a few thousand companies reformulate a few million products to feed two billion people better over the next five years and make sure that it's keeping the earth in mind, we're going to continue to do that by having that focus on that data in that way. All right, Rihanna, here's the lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. You get to give one word answers and one word only. All right, we're going to get started here with no further ado. What is the best team in the ACC? UNC Chapel Hill. That is a wrong answer right out of the gate. Wake Forest is the correct answer. <laughs> Clearly, Brett's underground. <laughs> I forgot they existed. <laughs> <laughs> what is one word that you would use to describe the food supply chain? Fucked. <laughs> What's your favorite smoothie ingredient? Avocado. I have never put avocado in a smoothie. I'm going to try that. All right, we now have two yes or no questions for you, so I'm going to make it easy on you. Okay, you ready for the first one? Yes, let's go. Canada, yes or no? Yes, big yes. That's a great answer. 
Right answer. Crush that one. All right. Does Michelle Obama have a green thumb? Yes or no? Yes. Big yes. All right. What food would you most like to see in cube form? This may sound weird, but like halibut? Halibut in cube form. I would not have guessed that. That would have been very far down my guess of where you would have got with that one. What is the next big food trend that no one has heard of? No one's heard of. That's something. I honestly, I'm so driven to like West Africa, West African fruits. I'm just going to say West African fruits. That was three words. You did not make it through. You were so close. You were close. So close. Oh, but we're not done yet. You are a collegiate athlete. You were really good at throwing things. You threw javelins and you threw discuses. Discus? The discus? How far could you throw me? So I threw a discus. I think it's like 4.5 pounds, like 170 feet. So I'm going to say like you're 170 pounds, so I'll throw you 4.5 feet. Nice. That's a good answer. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Mike, the CEO and founder of Tech Brew Robotics. Mike, what's the problem that you're solving over at Tech Brew Robotics? We're solving a 30-year labor pain for the mushroom producers of the world. Really shitty job. People don't want to do it. 200,000 people handpicking mushrooms every day for the fresh market. Poor ergonomics. Cold, stinky, lousy job. Yeah, labor issues everywhere in the food supply chain right now. How are you solving this problem? We're applying uh, vision-guided robotics to go in and find the right mushroom to pick at the right time and picking it without damaging it. The two biggest challenges to date in solving this problem for the, the industry. What's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world with this? Start with mushrooms, then what? So transform the industry and there's lots of opportunity within the industry to add value upstream and downstream using inline process control and artificial intelligence to optimize the whole process. And then, uh, you know, anything delicate growing on scale indoors would be our next go-to. Today I'm here with Baydad, the CEO and founder of Edgecom Energy. Baydad, what's the problem that you're solving The problem that we're solving is managing energy consumption and seeing how much energy mid-sized industrial facilities use is quite a big challenge. So a lot of times what happens is you're using energy and you don't know what's actually happening in the facility until a month later when you get your bills. So what we're doing is we're bringing in full scope hardware and software and all the different things that you need so you can monitor your energy consumption take actions on that energy consumption, get savings, and then we actually report that savings back to you with a really easy to use, easy to understand platform. How is this like a food or ag tech problem? You know, how does this fit in the food world? So food agriculture, all the way down to processing and transportation is about 20% of the total fossil fuel energy that's used in the United States. And 80% of that food production energy is actually used in logistics, in processing, and in transportation. 
That's cool. How are you going to take over the world? So I believe that energy consumption and reducing energy consumption is one of the biggest problems that uh, humanity faces. So we know that climate change is something that we have to stop as quickly as we can. And energy is a really, really big part of that mix. So there needs to be a default energy platform, regardless of what industry that you're in. And we're setting out to be the default energy platform for the whole world, for all industrial facilities. That's how we'll take over the world. And that's how we'll save the world, hopefully. So going back to our original question, what's stopping new food products from getting to market? I think it's what we talked about at the beginning, right? I think it confirms, you know, it's just hard for large organizations who launch most of the new food products are coming from enterprises. It's hard for them to get it right and figure it out. I don't know any stats on it, but I imagine that for every one new enterprise-based CPG that comes out, there's probably five failed or 10 failed. So hopefully they can figure it out. But as we talked about earlier, it's so much of a blend between what are the trends, what do customers actually want, and then all of the other factors that go into bringing something to market, the cost, the ingredients, the time, the regulations, anything like that. It all underscores how important the work Rihanna is doing right now. Great episode, guys. We'll see you here next week. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.